Hello everybody and welcome to another duplicitous episode of Poddywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Andrew Roger Carson, and with me as always is... Oh, you poor bastard. Sorry, I guess that means I'm Steve Hester for this episode. Ooh, you poor bastard. Yeah, jeez. Jeez, can we swap back? Yeah, okay, yes. No, I am Steve Hester. He is Andrew Roger Carson, and welcome to the show. Yes, uh, this is uh, obviously part two of our Harry Potter and a Philosopher's Stone. You almost said that, uh, didn't you? I, I almost did. I almost got it out, but it's indecent exposure in some places. <laughs> um, I just want to start off the show. We usually have our little bit of intro and banter and stuff here, but I actually just wanted to run a very quick promo, if that is okay with you, Steve. Shoot from the hip, Andy. It's always been your style. Yes, just as uh, plagiarism has been for you. <laughs> but um, yes, uh wanted to do a, a quick promo this week. Uh, an upcoming guest of ours will be uh, the two-time Academy Award nominated documentary director, Lucy Walker. Uh, for you people in Los Angeles, she is doing a Q&A and a screening of her latest documentary called Bring Your Own Brigade all about the uh, wildfires around the world. She is holding it on the 29th of November at the AMC in Century City. So go on down there uh, and watch this engaging movie and the Q&A with Lucy. And we will have a catch up with her on the show soon. So it all went. Yeah. And hearing that, it's not for the first time that I wish I was in Los Angeles. Me too. Wouldn't that be lovely? Oh, it'd be amazing. All the sun and the sea and the gorgeous people. It'd be just like Italy. Yes. And speaking of Italy, what's in the book from last week? What's in the book? What's in the book was the talented Mr. Ripley. Yes, the 1995, uh, 1995, the 1999 movie uh, starring Jude Law, a very toned Matt Damon, and Gwyneth Paltrow with some amazing uh, supporting performances from Philip Seymour Hoffman and Kate Blanchett. It is a story of uh, Tom Ripley, who is kind of dragged into a world of duplicitousness when he is hired by the father of a guy called Dickie Greenleaf, who is played by Jude Law, uh, to bring him back from his little love nest over in Italy, where he's sharing with his fiancée Marge, uh, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, it is a movie which... I'm going to get the kind of like the, the superficial things out of the way, first of all. It is shot absolutely stunningly. Anthony Mingell oh, yes. uh, directed this, and it's a period piece set in 1950s, is it? I believe it's the 1950s, yeah. Yes, 19, 1950s, kind of early 1960s, because there's this big explosion of jazz going on. And Italy itself looks... It looks achingly, just hauntingly beautiful. The beautiful blue azure sky and the gorgeous dark blue waters of the Mediterranean and these wonderful, rustic, tiny Italian villages which then give way to sweeping shots of Rome and um, Venice and the whole thing is just dripping with production value as far as that's concerned. Oh, it yes. is stunning to look at. Um, the performances are amazing going through mm-hmm. this. Um, possibly Jude Law's American accent is a little bit iffy. And it does... <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah, it does kind of drop out 
in a few places. Um, but it's only a tiny little criticism. Philip Seymour Hoffman's awesome, but then again, he was pretty much awesome in anything that he was in. And uh, seeing Kate Blanchett in this, in such a small role, was actually a little bit of a shock. I was used to seeing her as pretty much the leading woman, or yes. at least as a major supporting character in the things that she does. But she's barely in this. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure, but I think she actually kind of went for that. I remember hearing something about that ages ago. She just went for this tiny little role to go with it. Yeah, apparently there was, um, from what I've heard, there was a bit of conjecture about it because they're like, well, you're a real major star and this isn't really a really, you know, meaty role. But it was a meaningful role. She it's really, a very important role in yeah, the grand scheme was, of things. Even though she, what she did for the time that she had uh, was incredible and mm -hmm. uh, she is amazing there's a lot of standout things obviously the location is one right yes. because it is and it's great because i was watching it and my son was with me and he was saying you know that looks like luca <laughs> it does it conjures up a lot of images of the movie luca but then again the the director of luca is italian himself so it makes sense that his kind of ideal vision of his home country at that particular period in time when the film set, which I think is also kind of 50s, 60s, would mirror the style that Anthony Minghella put forward in this. The biggest nod, I think throughout it all, though, does have to go to Matt Damon, who creates a character, and we are going to be getting into spoilers here, so uh, if you don't want the movie to be spoiled, then just move on to the anniversaries in a bit. Um, he creates a character that you are not entirely sure if you want to root for or not. Very true, yes. And throughout it all, I, I kept wondering where his duplicity actually lies, because he says that he was good at forging signatures, doing impressions, and acting like other people, and basically stealing identities, as it would be now known as. And later on in the movie, that's exactly what he does, and he takes on the mantle of Dickie Greenleaf after he kills Jude Law. And there are some times where you, you're kind of rooting for him to get away with it all, but then you're starting to think, well, how far back does this actually go? And you look at the opening of the movie and he's playing the piano in a borrowed Princeton blazer, which then gets the attention of Dickie Greenleaf's father, uh, which then sets the whole thing in motion. And there's a little a comment at the beginning that, um, you know, that it all stemmed from this idea of borrowing a jacket but looking at the way that he prepared to go over to Italy and studying up on jazz and studying the language and studying Dickie and everything that he was doing you kind of wonder well was this actually part of a greater plan going forward and then seeing his portrayal throughout the later part of the film you're left wondering well is this all part of some giant scheme is the peaks and troughs of his adventure caused by his deliberate actions, or are they simply accidents of his spur-of-the-moment thinking? And it's something that you do carry with you right to the end of the film. And even when he does say that he would like to be uh, a somebody instead of a nobody, even then you're still questioning his motives. Was that what he actually wanted? And it certainly does leave you wondering by the time the credits roll. It is very true. And Anthony Mengele's movies are kind of like that. I mean, this movie is 1999. So this was mm -hmm. before Cold Mountain. Uh, it was, I believe, Anthony Mengele's movie after The English Patient, 
and uh, obviously the big Oscar wins, stuff like that. Uh, I, yeah, I think it was. Yes, and it was way after the uh, beautiful, truly madly DP with Alan Rickman, which is the perfect movie to watch if you miss Alan Rickman. You have to actually watch this movie of Alan Rickman coming back as a ghost. It is just a phenomenal movie. But Anthony Minghella really was one of these outstanding uh, filmmakers for the scope of a story. So much so, I mean, Matt Damon has gone on record. This is one of his favourite ever movies of his own that he has done, which is thoroughly believable. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's one that is widely seen as some of his other efforts, especially like the Bourne movies and this, that, the other. Yeah, I think it's probably eclipsed by Goodwill Hunting, which I think I think was his, like the last movie that he did before this, or at least it was kind of like the last major movie that he did before this. Quite possibly, because I know that he'd kind of put the weight back on from Courage Under Fire for Goodwill Hunting right. and Save It Prank Ryan, and he ended up losing £30 for this role. So he was on the, the infamous... Uh, it's Christian, the Christian Bale, Bale diet. Bale diet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. the, we, what we was it, an apple lot. and a glass of water that Christian Bale was on when he did The Machinist or something? Something stupid <laughs> like that? So it, was, it was something stupid like that. But uh, there's a great little bit of history with the talented Mr. Ripley. That if this film didn't exist, Tommy Wiseau would never have made The Room. Because apparently this was the movie that inspired him to make The Room. <laughs> really? Yes, it was upon seeing this that he wanted to make something, you know, this deep and emotional, and we ended up with The Room. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, he's, he's that serious? He was... No, that is, that is serious. It is serious. I saw in the interview where he was talking about it. But when you, when you look at this, I mean, the standouts here, I thought Jude Law was amazing in it. I mm. thought this was a real landing moment for Jude Law, and he was the only person in that principal cast who's never won an Oscar, right? But he did get a broken rib on the actual movie, apparently during the, the boat tussle. He actually <laughs> did get that. a broken rib in that scene. It is intense. It's, it's an pretty intense scene. rough watching it, and even if even if you kind of take the, the choreography out of it, out of the question, that boat is rocking from side to side quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Jude's amazing in it. As you mentioned before, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's just, he's amazing in everything he does, yeah, he's really. And he's great in this. Um, I, I love the writing and the dialogue, the performances of this movie yeah. were top notch. And the music, the music was amazing as well. You know, yeah. And I'm not a jazz person, but it fits so well into, you know, the, the era, the time, the location. It's just sumptuous. I really enjoyed revisiting this movie again. It really is. In terms of atmosphere, it is so just sumptuous. You want to just scoop it off the screen and just inhale it. It's it's, it's intoxicating at times. Um, if I'm going to label any kind of criticism at it, I would say that it is a little bit too long. And there was a point about... I'd say about half an hour before the actual ending of the film, just when he was like escaping from the police, that I thought, okay, this is all going to get wrapped up in a minute. And then it kind of carries on for about another 20, 25 minutes after that. Well, Anthony Mangel is not one of those directors that makes movies under two hours. I mean, no. he has. I mean, truly, madly, deeply was. There's another movie called Breaking and Entering, which was pretty good. Uh, that was under two hours. But he's known for the big scope movies like this cold mountain english patient and all stuff like that he certainly missed as well i was so saddened when he had died um it was like wow you know that's he was 
just this incredible visionary director that really drew you in with these movies. He was like a, I guess you could kind of class him, and this might be blasphemy, and I'm sure I'm going to get people, you know, really jumping on me because of it. He was almost very David Lean-like in mm, his okay. movies, in that epic scope. The English Patient especially, it's like watching a, a 1990s Lawrence of Arabia in a way in some of those shots it is absolutely beautiful and some shots to look at i'm sure we'll cover that at some point in the future we probably will because no doubt that's in the box as well yes yes as, as most of his are to yes. be honest well well before we move off and i give you my actual conclusion on the film um there is one piece of the one piece of trivia that i do want to lay on you Okay. And you've you've told me in the past to just lay off IMDb and it's like okay, I'm laying off IMDb. But the name Dickie Greenleaf that has yes. a connection with Deadpool. It does indeed. Yes, yes, it does. In Deadpool 2, Matt Damon does a a cameo, but he's made up. He's one of the rednecks that sat in the back of the truck when Cable arrives and uh, he's the one that's talking about using uh, baby wipes as well as toilet paper. And he's credited as Dickie Greenleaf, along with uh, the ever-awesome Alan Tudyk. Yeah, well, to be honest, I think that reinserts the fact that it's Matt Damon's personal favourites. The fact that, you know, he's he's lifted the name straight from his favourite performance Mm -hmm. to actually pay homage in it. But yes, that's that's an interesting piece of trivia. Um, And very true, also. And I didn't need IMDb for it either. Because I'd seen it on the Deadpool DVD. Well, there you go. See, you don't need IMDb. You're a smart guy. Don't go to everyone else's bullshit on IMDb. <laughs> we've proved time and again through every interview we've done, every time we bring Bill on, IMDb, it's where anyone can add anything. That and Wikipedia, you've got to go a bit deeper. Yeah. But for you, Steve, we just love hearing what you pick up from watching the movie. Yeah. And my pickup from this is, like I say, if I have any criticism, it's slightly a bit too long. But in terms of the performances, in terms of a, a story and a character that kind of haunts you and stays with you and forces you to analyse what it is that you're watching on screen, it's a perfect example of that. It really does stay with you. And uh, actually, one thing that we haven't really touched on is Gwyneth Paltrow. And she's the only character in the entire movie who actually twigs what it is that ripley's doing and everyone no one believes her um but it's it's good to see it because i think that was so this was 99 so they probably would have been filming it in say 98 so it was the year after Mm. seven so this was right when her kind of stock was really starting to blow up as well wasn't it yeah i'd say this was probably around the time she was doing stuff like a perfect murder and sliding doors and stuff like that but yes, uh, so that is the talent of Miss Ripley, worthy of a watch for all of you people looking for a really good movie. Yes. I think it's time to move on to Le Anniversaire. We watch them again all of the time. Oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. My beer has tequila in it. What Western was that from? Western. All <laughs> oh, right, we're not doing the Western themes anymore no, we're at not, the end no. of these things. <laughs> no, season three, we're doing a new anniversary song. Yeah, it's going um, to be heavy metal or something. Oh. Yeah, well, yeah, or oh, industrial rock. Know, industrial rock. Why not? Ooh, um, no, classical. 
Classical. Synth strings and harpsichord and everything. That'll be interesting. Ah, so right on a bit of time travel. And funnily enough, to lead us into that, can you believe, Steve? Yes. 40 years ago this week, Time Bandits was released. Oh, oh God, yes. I have not seen that movie in so long. Oh, well, trust me. Um, I, I watch all of the movies again that the anniversaries fall on in the week, so I find time to watch them to kind of update my opinions on them. Yeah. And Time Bandits is just this eternal movie, no pun intended. You know, it just lasts forever. And I think that speaks to the, the true originality of Terry Gilliam. True and, insanity you know, of Terry Gilliam. And insanity as well. You know, th- this is the guy who's gone out there and around this time, obviously, he, he did Brazil afterwards, which, mm-hmm. geez, that's an entire different story. You know, prior to this, it was co-directing on Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Life of Brian, which now are classes two of the funniest movies that are ever made. Yep. And, um, no, actually, though, he didn't co-direct on Life of Brian. He only uh, directed the animated sequences on Life of Brian. Well, he directed something on it, Steve. Yeah. Well, don't be know. facetious. <laughs> I don't even know how to speak facetious. Yes, exactly. When you look back, I mean, this is one of those movies. It's, it's a true success story because mm-hmm. this was one of those projects that no studio wanted to touch. And then enter George Harrison and Dennis O'Brien of Handmade Films. Yeah who've come in on all of these movies that no one wanted to make and just made classics. They, they practically were our British film industry for the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah. And it's brilliant. You know, it's, it's a movie about a whole bunch of dwarves, <laughs> you know. And when I was watching the movie uh, again the other day and, you know, seeing all these dwarves, uh, sadly every single one of them has passed on now. Yeah. But um, a lot of them were big mainstays of British television as well, weren't they? Oh, majorly. Yeah. But these these dwarves, they all repre- each one of them represented the Pythons, which I didn't really notice before. And then I picked it up in an audio commentary where they were all differently representing a member of the Python group. And your other bit of interest that's going to link to your interest here, Steve. Okay. That every single one of these time bandits were f-ing Ewoks. <laughs> really, they were having sex with Ewoks. No, but they were Ewoks. Every one of them was an Ewok in Return of the Jedi. Well, that would make sense because they put out major casting calls on both the... They, they shot um, all the stuff on Endor in Northern California, but they put out casting calls all throughout the UK for it. So that's how Warwick Davis ended up going over. So yeah, no, yeah. that doesn't surprise me one bit in the slightest. And another thing that really shot me because I, I watched um there's a documentary on handmade films that came out that i just watched recently and it covers time bandits extensively um because it was one of the big movies and i was actually really shocked to discover this this is the only film of terry gilliams that was made at handmade films which is really bizarre they didn't have anything to do with brazil or anything no they didn't that was um i believe that was emi thorn emi who did that right but yeah this was the only film of terry gilliams that it did away from the Pythons, that was made by Handmade Films. And I was like, surely they made more? Because Terry Gilliam and Handmade Films just feels this natural fit. Yeah, because wasn't um, Baron Munchausen, wasn't that... Uh, that was uh, Columbia that was, TriStar, wasn't it? That was Columbia TriStar, yeah. That was a yeah. troubled production as well. I picked up on so many things about this film when I was watching it again. And I realised from watching it this time, it's like, this entire movie is shot from low angles. Then I realised why. Yeah. It's like... You're seeing it from their vantage point. So 
an entire movie is practically shot from low angles, as you're seeing from from their uh, vantage point. And from listening to um, the audio commentary, <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. Of Shelley Duvall is in this movie. She plays like three different roles along with Michael Palin. She was probably glad not to have Stanley Kubrick all over. Oh, well, she ended up with Terry Gilliam all over, but in <laughs> kind of a different way. Because there's a scene where um, they're riding along in this kind of carriage type thing, and the time bandits drop out of the sky and they crash through thing and, and land on them all. And there was a bit of worry over it, and Terry Gilliam was no, it's fine. Look, it's absolutely safe. You know, Shelley, you're going to be absolutely fine. Watch, I'll even prove it to you. And he ends up climbing this ladder up to a tree and doing the jump to show her and lands on her <laughs> and injured her. Apparently, <laughs> so it was like, yeah. Oh, shit. That's... Uh, that's one of the only big American stars you managed to get in for this movie. You know, if, if you'd have landed on Sean Connery, he would have knocked you out. Well, yeah, because Sean Connery is the one that I remember being in it the most. Um, but then you've also got David Warner as he's like just like the personification of evil, isn't he? I can't yeah. remember the name because, like I say, it's been years since I've seen it. Well, he is from Salford. Wait, is he actually from Salford? Yeah, David Warner was actually from Salford, along with your mate, Christopher Eccleston. Who I'm still expecting a knock on the door after last week's episode and just have a, just open the door with it and they're going, am I an arsehole? <laughs> Do I look like an arsehole? And then smacking me. <laughs> I love you, Chris, honestly. Yeah, but in watching this movie again over the past week, um, the, the, the kid who plays the young lad, Craig Warnock was his name, mm-hmm. and he was really good in this movie. Yeah, and he didn't really go on to anything else afterwards. I thought it was a real shame. Um, but the special effects in this movie were brilliant yeah. for their day, and they still hold up today. I, I, I really have a major soft spot in this movie because I remember when it first got shown on Channel 4 here in the UK, which was its big premiere, and we sat watching it, and I remember to this day that watching it on there, knowing that the next morning, this is... The weirdest bit of trivia, but it sticks out in my head. The next morning, we were going downtown because Transformers' arrival from Cybertron was being released on VHS. (laughs) Okay. So it's a major bit of trivia, I know, but I remember succinctly of the first time I watched this movie when it was on Channel 4, I was just sitting there excited because that video was coming out the next day and they were going to buy it for me. Funnily enough, I had arrival from Cybertron as well. Oh, I think every kid had it. Yeah, it was great. I, I, pro- I probably still got it somewhere. I think I have as well, actually. Yes, but can you believe, Steve? Mm, maybe, Andrew. 25 years ago this week, mm-hmm. and I was talking with Bill about this one, the movie Michael Collins was released. Right. Now, I actually have a story about this. Oh, um, good. Yes. Michael Collins is about the, the troubles Yes. in Ireland, and you've got Liam Neeson in there, and it's... You know, it's a true story. It's a biopic. Um, and my granddad, who's from Southern Ireland, he passed away in 2011, but he wanted to go to the cinema to see it. And I wasn't really too mithered about it. But then um, I thought, well, there's nothing really else on that I fancy. So I'll go in there and watch it with him. So it was with my mum and I think one of my aunties. And we sat down and the movie starts. And about five minutes in, a guy about five or six rows ahead stands up, 
turns to the entire audience and starts shouting at everyone, calling them IRA sympathisers. And it's an absolute blasphemy against the British, this movie. And he keeps on shouting until a couple of ushers came and dragged him out. That's, that is one my one and only overriding memory of this movie. Everything else that was in it was being totally eclipsed by that fella shouting in the cinema. Wow, that's that's actually pretty pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> I think what was it? So twenty five years ago, so that would I'd be about sixteen, seventeen, something like that. So yeah, it's still here all this time. Yeah, I mean. I uh, and this movie is directed by Neil Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, Irish director, who did the amazing Crying Game, which I still think is his best movie. I know Bill would probably say something like Mona Lisa because I know he's got a major thing for Mona Lisa. Yeah. But um, the Crying Game, I thought, was definitely the the major Neil Jordan point. And obviously, Ralph Brown um, starred in the Crying Game. That was what yes. he said was the best script he ever read. Yes, he did. As well as Michael Collins, which I probably would class as one of. Neil Jordan's best, but there was also movies like uh, Greta and Breakfast on Pluto, which were two great movies that he did as well. Uh, I always found this was really interesting, that this movie, which was very violent in places, Mm -hmm. but in Ireland, this was given a PG rating with none of the violence edited out. And the reason why is because they classed it as, uh, it was mainly due to its historical content. (sighs) Okay, I can I can partially see where they're coming from, but even then, you know, you've still got things like uh, you can say the same thing about stuff like Pri- Saving Private Ryan. That still would have yeah. got like a fifteen or something. That's historical content too. Yeah, I mean, I always find it an interesting. I'd, I'd love to do a bit of more research into how they kind of get around that rating mm. because the BBFC were notoriously harsh, especially when it came to Warner Brothers movies. They would edit the shit out of their movies. Yeah. Uh, especially if Steven Seagal was in it. And unfortunately, they left Steven Seagal in it. This was Neil Jordan's follow-up to, I believe, Interview with the Vampire. I think that was the movie he did before this. And right. he would, from the success of that, I think he was given any project he wanted to do with Warner Brothers. That's from my belief. It could be wrong, and I'm sure I'm going to hear about it if it is wrong. Uh, but apparently, the Michael Collins project, I think it had been languishing for 12 years. That Neil Jordan had wanted to make this movie, and it was sat there for a while. It's, it's almost like it's a wrestling movie. I can see why, though, because if this came out around about 96, 97 or so, then that's not that long after the Good Friday Agreement. So yeah. that would have been the ceasefire in Northern Ireland and effectively oh, yes. peace being which, established. So, Which effectively ended whilst this movie was in production. Yeah. You remember the IRA exploded the Canary Wharf bomb around the time when this thing was in production. Mm. So... Um, it, that was kind of this ominous shadow that was kind of over this movie, I guess. Uh, other than the fact that there was a rumour, and it is only a rumour, uh, but I would love to know if it was true, that this was originally considered a Kevin Costner feature. Ooh, I hope that is just a rumour, because no offence, Kevin. You know, I'm glad that you've kind of made a comeback over recent years, but... No. You know Liam Neeson. When it comes to Michael Collins, because Liam yeah. Neeson was, he was great in this movie, he was. And Alan Rickman was great in this movie, you know, for his role in it. It was a kind of a supporting role. But Neeson and Alan Rickman were just great in it. Uh, I'd, I'd say they're the standout, apart from obviously the it, the cinematography was really good on this movie. I believe it was Chris Mengers that did the cinematography on it. And it's, it is a stunning film to look at, it really is. But the one thing... 
that will always stick with me with Michael Collins is when it came out on DVD. Why is that? Because this was one of the infamous Warner Brothers flipper DVDs. Oh, on both sides of the disc. Way to take you out of the movie. Mm. Because those edits were not kind. No. Sometimes they'd do it mid-scene. Uh. <laughs> and there's nothing worse than getting up to having to flip your bloody disc over. I remember oh. being so excited when the the single-sided version of Armageddon came out. Oh my and I was God, able yeah. to watch it just from start to finish. And I don't care what anybody says about that film. It's proper Bruckheimer kind of cheesy popcorn flick shit, and I love it. Um, that was like the extended version of Armageddon only had one extra scene of Bruce Willis going to visit his dad. I think played, so, yeah. It was played by Lawrence Tierney. Yeah. And it was, it was about 20 seconds. I think it added 20 seconds to the runtime, if that. I must apologise to everyone that my voice is still husky. I have been... The worst thing is, on this show, it's going to seem like I have had like this virus come and go for six whole weeks. <laughs> and it's not. We recorded all the interviews first, and then I have had this virus now for going on two weeks. This is my third week with it. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, Michael Collins is 25 years old this week. Um... We've got two more. Okay. Ready for these? Hit them. Uh, you might not have seen this one, but I thought this was worthy of a mention. Uh, can you believe, Steve, that 10 years ago this week, a movie called Immortals was released? Uh, I've got a, a vague memory of it. I think it was like one of those massively overdone CGI things. <laughs> yes. Which was t- trying to take advantage of 3D, but just was a great big galloping pile of shit. Well, it's a bit harsher than I would have put it. Um, For those of you who don't know, this movie was directed by an incredibly visionary director by the name of Tarsem Singh, who you may have seen his movie The Fall. Uh, You may have seen his movie uh, Mirror Mirror, which was like, um, uh, was it Snow White or Sleeping Beauty? Snow White, I think. Yeah, that'd be Snow With Julia Roberts in it uh, as the evil queen. Uh, You may have seen the movie Selfless that he did. But you've probably all seen the movie The Cell with Jennifer Lopez, which is what he directed. No, which I haven't, was this... actually. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it, critics have not been kind to it, but oh, it was one of the most cerebral, terrifying movies I think I've ever seen visually. Um, what you may know of it, I mean, Henry Cavill was the guy who really believed in this movie because he actually started training prior to the funding even coming in for this movie. And he did all of this training at his own expense. And the financing for this film ended up falling through like three times. And Cavell just kept in shape all the way through. He fully believed in this movie that it was going to get done. And it is all, you know, all about the, the gods and the gods and the humans and, and all this Mickey Rourke's in it, which I think was one of the last high profile things Mickey Rourke did before he started sliding back down the ladder again. You know, it's it's one of those movies where all of the men are oily muscle men. <laughs> you know, it's oily muscle men. They all look like they've come out of a Renaissance painting. And I went to see this movie in 3D. And it's so much better in 3D than when I actually did watch it not 3D. Because the one thing that I really do like about this is they had a very kind of unique way of the gods moving differently than the humans did. Right. right? It was brilliant the way they did it. I mean, basically what they did, they filmed the actors who were playing the gods 
at a thousand frames per second and then you know, everyone else was just in kind of regular so it is an amazing effect and i really do like it it's a movie that didn't get a lot of press and i don't even know if it was released wildly i, I yeah i i remember that i think the only reason that i was actually aware of it in the first place was that i saw a standee when i went to the cinema to see something else that was pretty much it yeah that's how I came across it because I hadn't seen any trailers for it. I was just like, "Oh shit!" You know, this looks like three hundred, mm. uh, but it's Tarzan Singh, so it's going to be visual. You've got to see this on a big screen, and it's amazing. You know, the production design, as with all of Tarzan Singh stuff, is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, make really good makeup on it. Uh, the music is amazing in it, but it is one of those things you really need to appreciate it by watching it in three D because it does lose a lot and i know it's hard to kind of see these older films in 3d unless they are released on blu-ray 3d but if you do get a chance to see it in 3d it's such a better movie for it i think all of tarsem singh's movies should be released in 3d because he is a true visionary of um amazing cinema and if you see the cell you'll see what i'm talking about it's not in the box because it's not certified fresh but it's something you probably should hunt down in your own time Speaking of the 3D part, I probably will watch the cell. I, do, I remember the poster and Jennifer Lopez in kind of like a red suit with a weird collar. Um, but in terms yeah. of 3D, I think I'm one of the only champions of the 3D push that happened a few years ago. I like it. I've still got a 3D TV and a number yeah, I mean, of 3D it, Blu-rays. I like it. If it works, you know, and if it's not Clash of the Titans, you know, which didn't exactly have the greatest 3D, but, you know, if it works, it works. You know, uh, my eyes were opened when I went to see Avatar in 3D. That was the first mm. time I saw a movie in 3D, and it was like, holy shit, this is this is the future. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, it wasn't the it wasn't kind of like the big sort of monster effects or anything like that. The one things which actually stood out to me were things like the um, the holographic display in the cockpit of the the ships. And how you could actually yeah. kind of like see the depth between that and the panel that was below it and the displays that was on the windows and things like that. That's Funnily enough, that's what I took away from Avatar more than anything else. Yeah. Mm. Well, speaking of taking it away, let's let's talk about our last one. I purposely saved this one for last. Go on, um, can you believe, Steve, that 30 years ago this week, The Fisher King was released? Okay, I've got to be honest, I haven't seen this one either. Okay. Well, this is another Terry Gilliam. He like he seems to like releasing his films around this time of year. For me, I, I went to see this at the cinema because all of the adverts made it out to be this really kind of quirky Robin Williams comedy with uh, Jeff Bridges, you know. And it's really deep. It has probably one of the best depictions of post-traumatic stress disorder I've ever seen in a movie and i'm not going to give you a spoiler because it is in the box and you are going to have to watch it okay but um i think it's right up there as one of robin williams greatest ever roles that people probably haven't seen and uh, you can tell it's a terry gilliam movie because you have posters for baron munchausen in brazil in the video store which was the old trick why not just promote my old movies i'm going to promote the two movies that were massive failures for me all over this 
and, and to be honest, I think until 12 Monkeys came along, I think The Fisher King was probably one of his most celebrated movies. Yeah, I think probably until 12 Monkeys, everyone was just ready to give up on him, really, weren't they? Uh, he, he's gone through stages like that, though. But yeah. this was the movie where he broke the three Terry Gilliam rules. So Terry Gilliam was uh, notorious that he would not direct anyone else's script. He wouldn't work with any major studios. And he wouldn't work in America. And he broke all three of these rules to make The Fisher King because it was based on someone else's script. Uh, it was for uh, TriStar, Columbia TriStar, that the movie was done for. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's filmed in New York. You know? And I think, one, not to take anything away from Jeff Bridges because he is brilliant in the movie, but this is Robin Williams' movie, even though the, the movie is centrally focused around Jeff Bridges' character. But the standout is the person who won the Oscar. And that was Mercedes Ruel for Best uh, Supporting Actress in this movie. And she's phenomenal in it. Absolutely amazing. Her turn is it's the proper New York woman. You know, Italian, Jewish, one or the other. But um, no, she, she is phenomenal in this movie. So it's, it's worth watching just for Robin Williams and Mercedes Ruel. And it's a really sweet story, really with a really kind of tragedy to it. But yes, um, The Fish King is 30 years old, and it's brilliant. It really is a great movie. Um, that's one of those ones that I've owned on every kind of media, I think, that it's ever been released on. You said it was in the box, though, yeah? It is going in the box, yes. All right, well, here's hoping that that one ends up coming out soon, because uh, I do remember it. I remember the posters. I've got a vague idea of what the plot's about. And I seem to remember something about um, Robin Williams going on the Wogan show, the Terry Wogan show, back in the late 80s, early 90s, whenever it came out. When, when did it come out? 19, well, it's 30 years ago. It's 1991, isn't it? 91, so yeah, it would be It would be on Wogan. Yes, the, the precursor to Graham Norton. Yes, except with more, more jumpers and lots of this. <laughs> yes. As opposed to <laughs> this! I'll never forget probably I think the greatest moment was I think when Nicolas Cage came out on um, the Wogan show yes I think, it looked I, like he'd done half a kilo of coke oh, <laughs> it was so bizarre I think he was doing Wild at Heart at the time and that's what he was promoting so he comes out and he's got his leather jacket and he's doing karate kicks in the air and he's got these playing cards and he's like throwing them out to the audience Yeah, and he's he's proper cage mental and uh, <laughs> you can find it on YouTube. Go and find it. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's, it's insane. You, you never run out of good quality Nicolas Cage going batshit crazy stuff on YouTube. Thankfully. Nick, we love you. Please come on the show. <laughs> yes, we, we would love to have you on the show. But speaking of uh, being on the show, we had to bring in for the second part of our Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Velocipasta. Um, um, the first Harry Potter movie. That's the one. Uh, last week, we had Bill Daly and Mark Marshall, who were talking us pretty much through the rights for it getting picked up all the way through pre-production. And we kind of spliced it in half a bit so that we could talk all about the production, post-production, and release this week so we can finish the story of our little wizard friend, Harry Potter. So basically, we're going to bring you the second part of the interview, and then if we're lucky, we'll get to nominate five. 
don't bet on it. Because someone had a bit of a surprise for us. Yes, yes, he did. They gave us a surprise left in our lives. Yes. Which comes in at the end of the show. Yes, with The Boy Who Lived, part two. Chris Columbus has gone on record stating that the near 600 visual effects on the first movie were a disappointment and were rushed and not up to everyone's standards. Uh, now, Mark, you were post-production supervisor at this time. Do you remember anything about this? Well, I, I've got to tread carefully here. But, uh, <laughs> I, mean, we, this, yeah, we, I mean, I think we had 593 visual effects. And, you know, when you're, when you're doing a visual effects-heavy movie and... and Bill can even fill in the the, the uh, missing pieces here. You you start out having to you know you have to accomplish a certain amount, or you have to finalize a certain amount of visual effects every day or every week in order to make your release date. And I think early on, Chris was sending so many shots back, and then also we had a, a visual effects producer. Uh, I don't want to mention his name because that'd be indiscreet. Um, I think in, in a lot of cases um, wasn't always in a mood to do previs or to, or to tackle, you know, an area of, of visual effects, which was why the Quidditch, which probably should have been done early on, was held off till June of 2001, you know, five months before the release of the film and took two months to, to, to do. So anyway, the, the effects started piling up and, and uh, Chris kept sending them back and, and it just kind of created a, a bottleneck, and we got to a point where we were endangering the release date if we didn't just go with the effects that we had. Yeah, and that wasn't all of it. Um, I mean, I, I get it. It was under a lot of pressure, um, and it wasn't always um, easy to deal with. I mean, for that reason, I think, more than anything else. This was a huge movie for everybody. Um, but I think uh, Warner Brothers errored. And um, it's my, you know, this is Monday morning quarterbacking going back. I think the studio erred in granting a huge um, deal with Sony Imageworks to do all the visual effects. They thought they were getting a package from Sony Imageworks. And the way, and I think they learned from that, that um, you don't put all of your eggs into a single basket. That um, there are, even if it's ILM. Because there are certain visual effects houses that specialize in um, in certain things, and others are not as good as they are with that. So you have to send off your um, your visual effects stuff to the person who or the vendor who can do it the best. And and putting everything into one company um, does not service the uh, the production as well as it should. So. Um, so that that's part of it. Okay. Rick Mail was featured in a number of scenes playing Peeves, but all of his scenes uh, pretty much were cut out of the movie and were not even reinserted in the extended edition, which also came out. Was this uh, a question of pacing for the movie? Was the scenes not very good? Uh, why why oh, were no. they completely lost? <clears throat> it was unnecessary. Peeves was just an unnecessary character really i mean he didn't propel the, he never propelled the story all he did was do mischief in in the castle and although it might have been quite amusing um it didn't really advance the story at all and the additional material was an invention of dvd 
when DVDs came in, the DVDs came, <clears throat> became commercially available the same year that this film was greenlit. And so Warner Home Video was always looking for extra things to entice uh, people to, to buy the DVDs. And um, so the, the promise of some extra material kind of loomed in there. But the, the extra material is inferior because it wasn't finished. The stuff that those scenes have been cut out long before um, the movie was finished. So, so then it became the task of Warner Home Video to kind of like finish these things up and, and add them as extra material. And it's, and it's stuff that the, the filmmakers had already abandoned. And I wasn't all that thrilled with what they had done with, with what Warner Home Video. I mean, they, they do a great job. Period. They do a great job. But it just seemed to me that if they were going to create stuff for extra um, scenes and all that, they could have chosen better. But I think they, they got stuck with what um, was partially finished. Okay, so basically they, they didn't want to go back in and uh, redo all the special effects or finish what was already half done. They just thought, okay, that's that's enough, just... But that's you put as much money as you can into it, but I mean, this is added material that nobody really needed to see. We didn't really need to see Voldemort um, come into the the Potter home at Godric's Hollow and and kill everybody. Well, that was really considered too dark an opening, anyway. Yeah, they went back to that um, later on in the series, where you see, you know, they went back and, and used some of that material because I, I don't think they went back to the actors and had them do it, but it's possible. Um, but the stuff was already discarded. So, and you'll find that a lot of things, not just the, the Potter stuff, but a lot of different movies where they have extended scenes and all that don't really add anything. They just make the length longer. Mm. Would it would be a nice little curio, I think, for a lot of fans to uh, to see. Like like for example, in Ghostbusters, there's that extended scene at the uh, the, the fortress, which kind of made it into the movie where Ray gets a ghost to. Um, perform and, and act upon him um, and I think that's only now just been released as uh, as part of an extra on the Blu-ray so who knows but that requires but it requires an investment to finish the visual effects yeah yeah and Peeves was just a, a cut out on the stick you know that's all it was that's, that's that's how far it got was literally a cut out on a stick so that the kids had a visual reference oh right so he wasn't even he wasn't even there on set in like a motion capture suit or anything no, no, it was it was Rick Mayall's voice, which was pre-recorded and then played back uh, on the soundtrack. Oh, okay. Um, well, that kind of goes nicely into the next question about the soundtrack, because uh, it is now famous as this wonderful John Williams score. But uh, apparently, James Horner was originally contracted to compose it. Um, how did Williams eventually end up being attached to the project, and what happened with James Horner? Um, that's news to me. It was always John yeah. I, I don't think Corner was ever considered. No. Oh. This is yet another one. We're coming with all these questions, and it turns out that the internet is nothing but lies. And sadly, James Horner is gone, and and mm. can't weigh in on on this. Um, I can't. I don't. Uh, Gary Lamel was the head of music at the time. I, I'm not aware of any discussions. The studio loved James Horner. And everybody loves John Williams, mm. not just our studio. But I mean, Warner Brothers, James Horner did a lot. He was the go-to guy when we had to replace Troy. 
the you know the score on Troy. Um, James Horner came, came to the rescue on that, and he's delightful to work with. Um, but I am not aware of any really serious discussion with him to do this movie. And and of course, these composers never turn any work down. They you, they could be doing um, six scores simultaneously, and um, they they just never turn any work down. They never say I I can't do this, I can't do that. So. Um, I, but I, it was always John Williams, as far as I knew. Well, and, and in fact, John Williams actually uh, scored music for the trailer. That's the, you know, he, he wrote the Harry Potter theme well in advance for, or Hedwig's theme for the trailer. So he was, yeah, he was on board early on. And Chris loved John because John scored Home Alone. There you go. Proof again that the internet, through its various sources, doesn't always get it right. There is a piece of music on the CD that didn't make it to the movie. The original um, Diagon Alley was, um, and Mark knows more about this than I do. The original Diagon Alley, um, the score for that was using um, um, older, like Celtic instruments. Is that, is that right, Mark? That's right. It just didn't fit. Yeah, I think Chris wanted something more welcoming more familiar i mean and i think he felt that the celtic instruments were maybe a little too um too unique i don't know i i i'm trying to think of the word for it but um so they ended up cannibalizing a, a piece from later on and and uh using it in that in that sequence yeah it's basically the, the you know pieces from the score that we'd already heard you know, it's the, the whole, uh, you know, um, it, it sounds a lot like when they first enter the castle at the beginning. In um, beginning of real two. <laughs> I know where all the I know where all the real breaks are for this movie. <laughs> well, Harry Potter became the first movie to open on more screens than any other in U.S. history at three thousand seven hundred and sixty two screens. What was uh, what made that decision to kind of go all in? Were there initial fears that it may not make the money back? Everybody wanted it. It was demand. Every cinema wanted it. And, and if you had a multiplex, they wanted it on almost all their screens. It, it was demand. Everybody wanted it. it. It wasn't a consideration of us trying to see if we can get our money back. We knew we were going to make money on this. In fact, they made a deal. Um, I don't wish to talk out of school, but enough time has changed, I think. I think the statute of limitations is up. They made a deal with ABC Television here in the U.S. So this movie already was already in the black before it was released. Wow. And they made a deal with, um, with the German tax authority. Um, at the time, um, in Germany, they were taxing you on your assets, um, I think, more than your income. So there were, um, I don't want to say tax cheats, but, but, but I think there were German um, investors who understood that there was, uh, there was a tax advantage to buying into motion pictures. And so there was, so we got money back from not only the British tax authority, but the German tax authority um, on this too. Now, now that doesn't cover all the marketing costs and stuff like that, but, but the, the total cost of the negative was paid for <laughs> before the prints were struck. Yeah. And as far as the prints, I can tell you that 
you know, the film opened day and date in several territories around the world. We ended up uh, with uh, 23 languages, subtitled and dubbed, uh, 14,000 prints. And, and that also included the alternate reels for uh, the different territories, the Philosopher's Stone and Sorcerer's Stone. So it was a, it was a printing nightmare. It sounds like it. Oh, they had all the labs going. They had all the Technicolor labs were going. Hollywood, New York, uh, Montreal, London. London, Rome. All that, They were all printing away. Uh, Thailand. There's, there was even a um, prints being struck in Thailand. There was, um, it, it was an incredible undertaking. But we had learned from the Matrix. We'd done the Matrix only two years earlier. And we learned from the Matrix that, um, um, that there were scoundrels around the world who were pirating this stuff and um and the way to one way to defeat that was to do um, have all the territories open as simultaneously as possible so how much did each of those reels actually cost i'm just i'm just trying to put in because this is this is a massive number well, it's, um, this movie was uh it was eight ab reels right Mark, uh, eight AB reels, yes. a thousand or two thousand feet apiece, sixteen hundred feet times whatever. I don't know what release printing is not as time consuming as you know making select prints and, and things like that. But um, you know it's got to be eleven cents a foot or something like that. I would think. I, I could go back and look at my. Um, let me see if I have my film my rates. <laughs> you know I do have Technicolor film rates here. Um, I'm, tr- I'm looking right now at my iTunes, and I'm looking um, to see where that Celtic piece was that John Williams did. Well, for God's sake, don't play it. We can't afford to I have a copyright strike. No, no, no. I don't. I, <laughs> but I don't see it. I don't see. Um, it, there's nothing that like jumps out at me as, oh, that's the one. But it is. Um, that piece of music is actually on um, the CD. Well, why are you searching for that, Bill? Uh, Harry Potter went on to become the biggest grossing movie of 2001, even beating the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings on the box office for that year. It was Chris Columbus's biggest financial hit at that time, uh, which obviously resulted in him being brought back for Chamber of Secrets. So what was uh, the atmosphere at Warner Brothers following the, the grosses news? It just reinforced for us that we had a winner. We, we you know, by the time the f- film had come out, we, we'd already previewed it in Chicago. We did this thing on, on the first film. Most of the studios, Warner Brothers in particular, um, believes in the preview process where we, we really want to put this in front of an audience and get, get scores. Um, now, that none of the Harry Potter films ever scored incredibly high, but uh, I, I think that was because they were never f- finished enough. The visual effects were always so rough um, you really had to have a, an imagination to to view the, these things. And we screened this film. Did you come to Chicago, Mark? Yes, I was there for both yes, screenings. Okay, so we uh, we we screened it in Chicago. That's because Chris was from Chicago and he wanted to go home and he and see his family and stuff. So it was a nice sort of like four or five day thing for him to come to the U.S. because we we went to Chicago and then we came to L.A. to talk about it and then um, and then he would go back to England. Um, and I have to tell you that his wife's family look like the Weasleys. Is that right, Mark? <laughs> yes, they're all redheads. He's married to this beautiful redhead, and they have these beautiful 
redheaded children and nieces and nephews and all of her family came to the screening and it was like it was like a bus had had opened up and spilled out a, a truckload of Weasleys. <laughs> well, it's a pity that they never had the kind of like a, a Weasley family reunion, and then they could have just come in and just played most of the family. And I mean that in the nicest way. I mean, I really do. I mean, Chris's family—they're they're all wonderful. I mean, Chris is a, is a good guy, and and the whole family is wonderful. Um, but it was it was really funny, you know. You're watching this movie, and then you're you're seeing all these little gingers <laughs> walking around the theater. <laughs> um, and then we we sort of set the um, and then David Heyman always said that you know Chicago was our lucky place. We had to go to Chicago, you know, which I never quite understood. It was all seriously. It was all about getting Chris to come home. Um, but there, and there was a lot of discussion about where we were going to preview. They didn't want to bring it to L.A. and then start all the Internet chatter because I think Aina Cool was was uh, riding high at the time. Mm. Um, um, and, and they wanted to make sure that um, kids from the, the center of the country, the Midwest, um, would be able to understand the different British accents from all the kids. You had a variety of, of kids there from different parts of England. And they uh, wanted to make sure that uh, that American kids could understand them. So we we ended up previewing all of the Harry Potter films in Chicago. Um, that particular cinema we used wanted to shut down, and I think we kept them open. We paid them to stay open until we finished the second Harry Potter film. That we did the previews on that, and then we had to move to another cinema a little further north in the city of Chicago. And I think it was on the third one that word had leaked out that there was a preview. There was some obscure Italian website and it really threw the studio into a tizzy. And at the last second we, we moved. Um, and then we finally settled on the AMC River East, I think. I think you were, uh, I, I don't think you would have gone to any of those, Mark. No, I didn't. Um, but it was, um, Chicago was always an adventure. When, uh, when we were doing these films. Now, uh, speaking of The Lord of the Rings, like Andy's just brought up, and it's something that I can do all day, um, for three years, these two magical franchises faced off against each other at the box office. And while Harry Potter was made uh, directly by Warner Brothers, Tolkien's epic was made by the Warner Brothers' own New Lime Cinema. So, despite the dual ownership for the parent company, was there any worry on the production side as this being overshadowed by this also hotly anticipated adaptation of what was, at the time, the single biggest selling book of the 20th century? Um, I think it was... Um, I think they viewed them as slightly different audiences. I, I, I did get a sense there was competition, personally. I mm. got a sense that there was competition. But I never felt Harry Potter was in danger in any way. And it's funny because my own son preferred the Lord of the Rings over, over Potter. I mean, I, I, it was the battle scenes that really captivated my son. Yeah. Hmm. I've, I've got to be honest, I'm more of a uh, Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, but there is one thing, though, which always stuck in my brain as over here in the UK, and uh, you probably know, um, the BBFC started putting uh, details of what could be expected from the films on the poster so i think it was a pg or, or a 12 or whatever and it contained fantasy spiders 
<laughs> and it had the exact same thing on the two towers. So I, I just remember just that period, just looking out for posters which had fantasy spiders on them. They seemed to be everywhere. Um, well, I think you probably got different posters than we did. Yeah, I don't think um, I don't I don't remember the spiders taking spiders are especially in the second mm. film, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember them being especially. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't remember a spotlight being thrown on them in any of the posters that we had. Well, one for you, Mark. Uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher slash Sorcerer's Stone has a very similar feel and plot to Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear which is a movie you yourself have this history with, as mentioned earlier. Uh, do you feel that this was also played in to kind of sell Chris Columbus, who was the writer of it, as the, the Potter director? No, I, you know, I think that, that uh, Chris's choice as director was really based mainly on uh, his kid-centric movies like Adventures of Babysitting, Home Alone, um, and probably Goonies as well. I mean... Uh, Young Sherlock Holmes was definitely a mold, you know, that the emblem's kind of fitting into. But in my opinion, uh, it wasn't. It really wasn't reflected in that. Well, and another thing here: J.K. Rowling was apparently offered the role of Lily Potter during the mirror scene, but apparently she turned it down because she was convinced she'd ruin it somehow. Uh, to the best of your guys' knowledge, was she ever asked to do other cameos throughout the entire series? That would have been an interesting notion. I'm not aware of that, but I think she's quite right. So, um, because if if she appeared as Harry's mother, it would have drawn attention away from the scene and and onto yeah. her, and uh, it would have taken away, I think, from the impact of that scene. Now, luckily, the the actress um, I don't remember her name. Um, I do remember her being on some um, British productions I'd seen on television, but luckily she was still available so she was there for four she appears in the in the final two films so um i was grateful that she was around and, and very good a capable actress because i've seen her in oh uh, geraldine in somerville things. yeah that's it i was trying to wrap my brain I remember myself. she was in a police drama she was in a british police drama that i'd seen um with chris eccleson oh god i can i can picture it now it's in my head but i'll be damned if i can remember the name but J.K. was never offered any other kind of cameos throughout the entire series. She, she might have been. I, I, I'm not aware of it. Um, why not? I mean, it would be great if she wasn't recognizable, you know, because it would. It would draw attention to her. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, John Le Carre in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you don't even notice it's him at the Christmas party scene. Right. But it's but it's certainly an interesting notion. That would have been cool. And then and then if you could go back later and say, hey, that was J.K. Rowling uh, in makeup doing that, and, and then and then it could maybe boost some of the ancillary market sales. You know, oh, I want to see what J.K. Rowling looks like in this. That would have been cool. But I, I you know, the thing is that was um, that was way above my pay grade. Whether or not she was um, going to be considered or, or offered that kind of opportunity. Well. <sighs> We've got rather an interesting question here, and I don't really know how this is going to go. Um, but the 1986 movie Troll features several characters called a Harry Potter. There's a Harry Potter Junior and a Harry Potter Senior, and it mirrors several of the elements from the story, including the uses of magic and fighting trolls. Now, J.K. Rowling claims there's no connection 
but was this ever brought up as a potential issue throughout production? Not to me, not as far as I know. There we go. That's your, that's your simplest answer. Well, I have to tell you that um, Warner Brothers probably would only take um, a second seat to Disney on um, aggressively protecting their, their copyrights and their trademarks. So I, I, I have to believe that if, it, that if the legal department um, thought there was an issue, that they would have pursued that, and, and certainly I would have heard of it. And surely that would have fell on the books and not the actual movie studio because it's adapting a book first that would use elements of that, like Harry Potter mm. and use of magic and fighting trolls. I don't think it would actually fall into that domain. Personally. Probably not. It's just interesting when you just look at the uh, the parallels between that old schlocky horror movie from the 80s and uh, and this uh, and this one. Mm. That's fair, yeah. Yeah. They always say, what is it? Every single movie only follows like uh, seven to nine different yeah, seven um, stories. Stories. When realistically, what they should do is just nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. Or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. No, it was quick on the draw. Well, we've got a bit of a difference here this week because as we are extremely lucky enough to have both members of Executives in Exile on our show, which is a fantastic <laughs> podcast run by Bill Daly and Mark Marshall. Yep. It is on Brigade Radio 1 and you should check it out. It is a fantastic uh, podcast and I've been on it myself four times. So it's pretty good. Well, who's, counting? So far. <laughs> who's counting? Who's <laughs> counting? <laughs> but seeing as though we we have these wizened studio execs here, it wouldn't be right not to do a nominate five. But as I believe, they have decided to completely hijack our segment. Yes, we've changed from wizened to wise asses, and we are <laughs> we we wanted to hijack this because. Um, we've already appeared on this thing. So we've already nominated five pictures and, and I'm sure there's an infinite number of things that we could nominate in the future. But, um, but I thought it would be fun to nominate five books related to film rather than, than films. So, so instead of sending you to Netflix or a video store or whatever, that we would send you to a bookstore or a library. Yeah, maybe you could go to bookpages.co.uk, was it? Yes, yeah, and you could buy DVDs there too. I understand. Maybe a DVD of the book. Yes, you never know. I think you could buy. I think you can buy everything there, <laughs> even an old VHS copy. Yes. <laughs> well, these are obviously going to be. I guess you're nominating five of the best books in relation to film between the two of you. Yes. Well, we're nominating right. five books that we think. Um, should be essential reading if you um, want to um, get into the film business or stay, you know, stay in the business or, or if you just want to be more informed about the business. Is that accurate, Mark, you think? I, it's perfectly accurate. Okay, so I'll take it. Mark's got two, you've got two, and then you both agree on one. Well, no, no. It it's, um, I, I told Mark that uh, we, Mark and I had discussed this previously and I, I said to Mark, um, 
you know, I want to take a more literary route here. Came up, I came up with three books, and then I asked Mark to come up with three books or two or, you know, or whatever. I just, I didn't want to inject my three, you know, and hog it all. So, um, so I came up with two and an alternate. And then, um, and then, so maybe we'll end up with six. I don't know, but. Um, oh, yes. It, it, it's not like our countdown is important, really. No. <laughs> yeah. We, we can add and subtract numbers all we want, especially when Bill Daly comes on. So <laughs> we will start, I guess, with number five. Who's got what for us for number five? Um, do you want me to do that, Mark? Or do you want to take it? Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, this is not a technical book about filmmaking. This is about someone's experience in Hollywood as a filmmaker. Okay. And, and I think this is an essential book for everybody who loves films. And that's Frank Capra's The Name Above the Title. Yes, I have read this book. I've done. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. Um, it's, uh, I, was, I was very sad when I turned the last page over uh, because I didn't want it to end. I just wanted it to keep going and going and going. Um, just a wonderful book. Um, it came out in 1971, so it's already 50 years old. And, um, and, and sort of an added thing for me, I already had the book, uh, but Frank Capra came and, um, and taught for a week uh, when I was at Temple University in Philadelphia. And he came in 1973, I want to say, maybe 74. He came and, and taught for a week, and I, I attended every class. I talked to him. Um, after every class, and then I asked him all kinds of questions, and then he sort of took his show on the road, as it were, and visited other universities and and all that, and eventually worked his way back to Princeton University, which is not far from Philadelphia, and I remember um, two friends of mine and I drove to Princeton one night, and we actually sat in a screening. This was unique to Princeton. They They did screenings. And then he came and did Q&As after the screenings. We went and we saw It's a Wonderful Life. It was, it was not generally available in those days. It, it, fell, it fell into public domain because, um, because Paramount uh, botched the renewal of their um, copyright on it. Um, so now it's everywhere. But in 1973, 1974, 1975, um, it wasn't generally available. Um, anywhere. And so it was a real treat to sit and watch that film for the very first time with Frank Capra sitting about three rows in front of me. Um, and I remember when he did the Q&A, I got up to ask a question and he recognized me. <laughs> he pointed up and he said, Temple. Um, so that was cool. And I, I, and I took my book with him and I got him to sign it for me, which was a real treat. And I still have it. Perfect. Awesome. So that's Frank Capra, name above the title. The name above the title, yeah. Name above the title. What do we have for number four? Did Mark? you take this one? Yeah, you take this one, Mark. My number four would be uh, uh, a book called The Big Picture, Filmmaking Lessons from a Life on the Set by Tom Riley, who was Woody Allen's first AD. And this thing is chock full of, of practical information based on uh, experiences on the set and problems. I mean, everything from rainbirds to crowd control. Um, it's, it's an amazing book I and mean, it's, it's uh, got a lot of great tips. So anybody who uh, wants to get in the industry, 
uh, or is thinking of maybe uh, taking the assistant director's training program, I highly recommend this book. It'll it'll give you a leg up. Perfect. Awesome. Okay, that's great. So I guess we're going back over to Bill for number three. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this this is my favorite book about um, filmmaking, and that's Sidney Lumet's Making Movies. Ah, uh, that was one of mine too. How oh, is it? <laughs> yes. This uh, is why you have an alternate. Yeah, the first crossover. <laughs> yes, absolutely. One of my favorite. A wonderful book, too. and I, um, I, I never got especially close to um, Sydney. I, I did two pictures with him, but I always admired his work. I never got a chance to like hang around the set and stuff like that. But uh, but I always admired his work, um, and it's a wonderful book. It really, really is a great book. I agree. I concur. Right. Okay, then. Um, so, okay, so that was number three, and you've got your first crossover. So what's going to be number two, Mark? Number two is a kind of a selfish choice, um, but a, a very good book indeed, and it just came out in September. Um, it is called Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life uh, by J.W. Rinsler, who actually passed away from cancer the previous month in August. Mm. Um, Howard was my mentor. Uh, in fact, he's the reason I'm in the business because uh, he gave me a shot as a film runner on the sequel to American Graffiti and then uh, kept me on at Lucasfilm and started me in the business. But uh, it's a great book. Howard was not only a gentleman, but he was one of the greatest producers, uh, so organized and never raised his voice on the set. He, was, he, he is well-loved. And, um, but he was, he started out as, a, a, he went through the dir director's assistant training program and, uh, then was on the wild bunch with Peck and Paw. He did, uh, Finian's rainbow as a first AD with Francis Coppola, uh, was Hitchcock's first AD on family plot. And then George Lucas gave him a, a chance to produce the sequel to American graffiti and then went on to do, uh, return of the Jedi um, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So uh, it's, it, again, full of practical information. And uh, I actually have a quote in the book, so I kind of have a personal stake in it. <laughs> no, what a brilliant choice. And I'm, I'm going to hunt this book down myself. I will so, too. Well worth it. So now well this leads it. us down uh, back to Bill for the big number one. What have you got for us, Bill? Th this book is, if anyone who knows me, this is a very, very obvious choice that I would make. Um, but it's not, it's, it's, I wouldn't make it number one. You know, if, if I were, if it was just me and I said I was going to give you three books, I would have made this the number three book. And I would have put Making Movies and the name above the title above this book. Um, but this book it's is. It's a bit late very, now, Bill. I know, I know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just qualifying it. Um, but this book is um, it, it, it is so full of information, but it's not for a beginner because it's there's studio jargon in it, not not filmmaking jargon, studio jargon in this, and um, and you need to know some of that before you tackle this book. Otherwise, um, I mean, it's easy to read and everything like that. And that's the uh, the Total Filmmaker by Jerry Lewis. No, I, I go way, way back with the Lewis family. In fact, one of Jerry's sons is about 30 feet from me right now <laughs> in another room Hello, in my Scott. house. Uh, yeah. So, um, 
there's a book with a lot of sort of like practical information about the process of filmmaking and dealing with a studio. And it's got some humor in it. He's known for having a sense of humor. I have heard that as well. Yeah, and this book was actually based on his lectures at USC in the cinema department. Um, It's the first book on cinema I ever bought back in 1971 uh, in my hometown and was kind of the deciding factor on me wanting to be be in the film business. All right, so pretty influential for for both of you then. Yes. No. Well, awesome. thank you very much for hijacking our show for this very informative Nominate 5. There are actually some books here that I am going to put an order in. Uh, I'll go on to Amazon, find the best deals for them, and wait for them to come so I can see what's in the box. There's, um, I, I would tell you there's a new edition of um, The Total Filmmaker. Um, I mean, it's so new that it's it's like in the last two months. There's a new edition of the book. Um with some added material in it, not that they've added chapters, but um, the the visual information that's in there. The original book has um, has photographs in it, um, and it has uh, a couple of script pages and things, pictures of of um, Jerry on the set um, with cameras and stuff like that, because he gets into lenses and lens selections and things like that. But the new edition, all the photos I think are different. But they're similar. I mean, in they're in the same vein. But he also has some storyboards in the new edition. So that would be the uh, 2021 edition. And uh, and you'll find that the 1971 editions, they, it came out the same year as uh, Frank Capra's book, so 50 years ago. Um, the original edition, you'll find, um, can be difficult to find and rare. So very expensive. There we go. Can we do the link now? (laughs) (laughs) Says up perfectly for the what's in the box link. (laughs) Oh, screw it. I'm just going to play the jingle. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? I hope it's a first edition. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> okay. Well, as we're probably going to order all of those books from Amazon, at least I know I have a couple that I haven't actually heard of, but we do have our regular section of What's in the Box, and we have tortured Steve something chronic mm-hmm. with What's in the Box all over the last season, and I thought I'd uh, dig into the box while the music was playing just to see what would happen. Uh, it's probably a good job that Bill is not watching alongside you. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yes. I'm, I'm sure Bill is probably going to say to me later on, why this movie? And the main, main reason being is because it is certified fresh. And I have a feeling you haven't seen it, Steve. So we ended up with Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> I actually heard Bill there go, oh. Yeah, I could hear the I could hear the tea spitting from my hair. Oh my god! No, no, I haven't actually. To be honest, I've only ever seen two Kubrick movies, and that was The Shining and Full Metal Jacket. So, oh, just think you could have ended up with Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. I know. That's in uh, there as well, somewhere. Yeah, 
Tell you what I could also have ended up with. I could have also have ended up with a copy of Gothic by Steve Hester, which is now available as a digital download from many reasonably priced uh, booksellers. <laughs> so, there you go. All right, we're, we're just running free promos now, are we? Yeah. <laughs> They're talking about books. Oh. I might as well put my book out there. Go on. Have you got yeah. a book out there, Mark? Have you got one, Bill? Not yet. Not, yeah, not yet. As soon as we are, they're all safe. I don't think my book, got a book would out clear yet. the legal department. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lot of the stories that you've told doesn't even clear the editing process, let alone the legal department. I don't even want to go into that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about um, the release prints and what they would cost. Okay. Oh, we... so, um, so I'm looking at the 2000... Um, 10 price list from Technicolor. Now, we would have gotten a discount <laughs> on the release printing had Mark Marshall, the post supervisor, delivered this movie on time. <laughs> wait, 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 what? What? <laughs> Say we what? We used to get a discount if, if, if we delivered to Technicolor the elements um, six weeks in advance of release, we would get a discount on the release printing. But this movie did not get finished six weeks. Well, it was. All, hey, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. In my defense, it was almost six weeks. It was three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm up. Um, but um, we. But it was. Um, it was eight AB reels, I think. Yes. Um, so 16,000 feet times uh, roughly 18 cents a foot, um, depending on whether you're using Vision or Vision Premier stock on your release print. So that's $2,880 per print wow. times how many thousands? Uh, 4,000 prints uh, times eight AB reels. That's $11,520,000. Wow. Give or take. In Mark's defense, he was stuck in downtown LA traffic. Yes, <laughs> on route, and I was not happy about it. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, Mark um, returned from England in ill health, um, so Mark stayed there for the premiere. The the premiere in London uh, was that was in Leicester Square, I guess, at the Odeon, right? Yes. Okay. The Mark stayed there, and then on his way back, so he told us, uh, Mark and Amy and I that he was, you know, returning to the U.S. And we um, implored him to stop in New York on the way and um, and be there for the New York premiere. Yes, which was great. Yes. Um, and then Mark fell off the grid with sinus infections and um, all kinds of diseases he picked up while he was in England. Dengue fever. <laughs> you didn't go to Salford, did you, Mark? No. <laughs> No, I had leprosy, uh, everything. I was seriously concerned for his health because um, um, he worked his ass off. Well, I got to say that I will always be grateful for that opportunity, and it, that's directly thanks to Bill Daly. And to be honest, Mark, you, you always put your heart and soul into all the work you do. Yeah. And uh, it's very well, evident in a very much-loved Harry Potter movie. You're too kind. Well, I think that's the end of our show for today. I'd like to thank both of our guests, Mark Marshall and Bill Daly, for coming on and uh, basically disproving pretty much every single rumour that the internet has thrown up about this absolutely iconic movie. 
that's formed the basis of uh, many people's uh, childhoods over the last 20 odd years. So thank you very much for both coming on. Well, thanks for having us. If if I can say one thing, um, I'm proud of these films, all eight of them. I'm I'm very proud of them. They're they are among the highlights of my career. But none of these films come close to the experience of reading the book. So read these books. Yeah. Uh, by all means, see the films. But yeah. read these books. These books are absolutely amazing. I agree. It's very true. There's so much more reward from reading the book. Uh so basically we are going to be hearing again from Bill. Yes, we threatened you, Bill. Uh, he will be coming back on in the near future, as well as Mark Marshall as well, who is going to be coming on and, and talking about his years with Richard Donner on probably your, your favourite topic to talk about, Mark the Goonies especially. Among others. And many others. I am going to say right here and right now, after my bombshell during season one, Mark, when you come back on, I will have seen the Goonies from start to finish. I'm holding you to that. Yes. Yes, I think you'll be um, you will be pleased to have seen it. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a it's a really nice movie. I mean, it's it has a lot of heart. I've seen yeah. bits of it here and there, but I've never seen the whole thing all the way through. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hold uh, that is a promise you can hold me to. Okay, I'll be quizzing you on it. And then, <laughs> then we're good. And then he's got to watch New York Minute. Oh, oh <laughs> no. my God! No, no, <laughs> I would I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> Oh man! Oh God! Please, you might prefer that over Eyes Wide Shut. Denny Gordon direct that? Yes, I I like Denny Gordon a lot, and we did several films with her. Um, But um, that, for other reasons, political reasons, um, at the studio, that movie opened up some floodgates that I would have preferred the studio not um, (laughs) surf down. I mean. Yeah, it was uh, interesting. Yeah, and I I barely remember the film. I mean, I understand the premise of it. Um, I have seen it, but um, I I barely remember it at all. I'm looking Pro- this up probably right for the now. Best. Oh, you better put that one in the box. Although I'm sure it's not certified fresh. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, we're we talking about the film with Mary Kate and Olsen. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, well anyway. It's it's time for us to sign off, but thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming on. We will look forward to speaking to you again very, mm-hmm. very soon. Thanks, uh, guys. In the meantime, have a happy Halloween. And uh, Bill, stop putting those razor blades in all the sweets. And remember, wrapping up cat poop in a Tootsie Roll wrapper, <laughs> that also doesn't quite work either. Where do you guys come up with this stuff? I never even thought of stuff like that. <laughs> Who thinks of this stuff? I don't know. I know. But for now, it's uh, it's a goodbye from me. And uh, it's a goodbye from me also. Take care. think that this is being edited in time for Halloween, you have got another thing coming, mate. <laughs> uh, I know.